Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alan Atkins, second year psychiatry resident. Hi, Alan. Hey, Dr. Parks. Or, <laughs> hey, Aaron. Hey, oh, you made the mistake again. Yes. I'm more, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're friends. We're friends, Alan. Uh, the views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to talk about why it's important to understand attachment and particularly how it affects each and one, every one of our lives in a way that I didn't really understand before kind of looking into this before this interview because we are very pleased to have as our guest, Dr. Jeff Katzman. Dr. Jeff Katzman is a professor of psychiatry at the University of New Mexico. He serves as vice chair and director of internet, an international program on psychological resilience training and maintains a private practice. He is a lecturer at Yale University's Department of Psychiatry and director of education at Silver Hill Hospital in New Canaan, Connecticut. Dr. Katzman has studied improvisation for 30 years and has applied psychiatric trainees, psychotherapists, and patients. He is the author of two books, Integrating Psychodynamic Ideas with Improvisational Guidelines, Life Unscripted, and Ensemble, which was just released two days ago. Dr. Jeff Katzman, thank you for joining us tonight on Let's Get Psyched. Thank you, Dr. Atkins, Dr. Parks. Great to see you. Yeah, nice to see you again. Now, uh, why uh, can you explain what we mean by attachment? I think I, we do. We want to make sure that everyone's on board with this. Uh, what, what is it? And why is it an important concept? Like, why do you use it in your practice? Yeah, so attachment is is kind of one of these big words that can be thrown around. It's part of different diagnostic systems. And when I think about attachment, and when I think the people um, uh, who are are really involved in the attachment literature think about it. They're thinking about um, really originally the research paradigm of, um, of human attachment and what we know from the strange situation and how that predicts something called the adult attachment interview. And it uh, has some highly specific meanings and, and I can talk through that. So that's different than saying somebody, for example, um, has reactive attachment disorder or, or something like that, um, but is referring to specific categories of human attachment that I can uh, and I can talk through um, kind of what that means. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to, so we're probably going to be interrupting you many times throughout this um, podcast to break it down as we sometimes have to for some topics that get very um, asymmetrical between what doctors know and what the public knows. So let's first ask you, um, what is Mary Ainsworth's strange situation? Yeah, great. Great question. So Mary Ainsworth's strange situation is shown to uh, most students in an introductory psychology class. And so some of you listening out there might remember this and say, oh yeah, I, re I remember that. And in the strange situation, a parent and a, a, around a one-year-old, a one to one and a half-year-old are brought to a room and there are toys in the room and then a stranger enters and the parent leaves the room and we code how the child responds to the separation. Um, so how does the child actually react to the parents leaving the room? And, and then the parent uh, returns in what's called the reunion. And there are some predictable behaviors that we see in the separation and in the reunion uh, that, uh, that 
have some predictive values um, and have been studied extensively. And, and the strange situation is one of the most studied paradigms in all of psychological research. Mostly, um, if you look at a community sample, so kind of people in a community, about 60% of um, parents and children would behave like I'm gonna describe right now. Um, when they're brought to a room and, and the parent leaves, the child would protest, would say like, wait, where are you going? Would scream, would follow, um, and, and really in, in all likelihood wouldn't be able to be reassured by the stranger in the room. And when the parent returns um, at the reunion, the child can settle down and return to play. So, so there is a, um, a secure base that lives within that parent from which the child, when they feel securely attached, uh, can explore the world and seek proximity in times of danger, in times of stress. So 60% of, of, of kids respond like that with their parent. About 25% of kids in, in studies, and these are meta-analysis around the world over, over decades of research, about 25% uh, respond in an, a more avoidant way. So when the parent leaves the room, uh, the child doesn't really care. Cause like who needs a mom or a dad when there's these awesome toys around? So already by a year of life, they've realized actually the greater value is in the objects and not in the parent. Um, and then when the parent returns to the room, who really cares? Because I'm into these toys. I don't. I don't really. I don't really need my parent. So there's somehow, in some way, um, there's been a, a turning down of the attachment behavioral system, and and the parent perhaps has indicated, if even unconsciously, that actually um, kind of don't come to me with stuff. But about fifteen percent of kids and parents. What, what happens is when the parent leaves the room, the child cries and protests. But when the parent returns to the room, uh, the, the child can't settle down and they can't return to play. They're overwhelmed um, by the experience. So we can think of, of a secure, um, what's called in the research paradigm as uh, the bee babies, um, uh, the avoidant, those like, I love these toys babies, um, those are the A babies. And then the C babies are uh, what's called ambivalent resistant. So that's the category for kids. So I learned about attachment through uh, one of the premier um, attachment researchers named Mary Main and her husband, Eric Hesse, who've done extensive research and publication. And, and Mary Main actually created the adult attachment interview. And, uh, and she was actually working in Mary Ainsworth's lab and she was doing the kind of pre-interviews before uh, parents and children would go into the strange situation. And she started being able to, to predict, uh, well, that's gonna be a B4 baby. There's actually um, like B1, 2, 3, 4, 5, A1, 2, 3, C1, 2, 3, but she was able based on something uh, to predict how, based on something with her conversation with the parent uh, how their baby would react. And Mary Ainsworth, Mary Main was, was a linguist. That was her passion. So she began to get curious about language and the way that these parents were expressing themselves and telling their story. Uh, Mary, Mary Ainsworth had tried to understand, is there something ab about the parents that associated with uh, child 
behavior. She did this in, um, in her Uganda studies and all she could come up with was it wasn't whether the parent was breastfeeding. It wasn't whether the parent, um, anything about social class or anything. It was something about their, what she called vaguely at the time, excellence as an informant. So there's something about the way that a parent could tell their story that was predictive about the behavior of their children. So, okay. So to, to, to catch us up or to summarize what we've said so far, it sounds like there's these people and they're studying um, these babies and how they react to their parents. And then all these doctor folk have taken something from this and then they're making meaning of it somehow. And yeah. so we have, and there's, you know, we, you've talked about um, Ainsworth and you've talked about Mary Main. Um, what is, give us a preview of the who cares for the non-doctor public um, or sorry, the non-mental yeah. health provider public. What is, why, did, why, why should someone care about this? Uh, for so many reasons. Um, the, the first of which is that uh, secure people do better in life. So secure people are able to, to more readily navigate the world. So when cohorts, there's a book by uh, Robert Karen called Becoming Attached. And, and when he followed cohorts of children through preschool and kindergarten and um, uh, looked at teachers' assessments and valuations and the drawings of those kids, it turns out that actually the secure kids at one and a half year of life, they drew more hopeful pictures. They were better liked um, by their peers and by their teachers. And they were able to stay out of trouble generally. They de generally were not the bullies. Those tended to be the more avoidant kids, the ones who were focused on the toys. And they tended to not be bullied um, quite as much because they could navigate when to get an adult um, to, to intervene. So even within childhood experiences, there's a, a sense of resilience that somebody has um, by, by having a parent who's, who's attuned and who cares about a child's um, internal world to, to the point where, where the child has come to trust them and, and need them. We also know, um, and I can talk about uh, the adult attachment interview, but we know uh, that later in life, um, adults, that, that um, security in general is a good thing and that psychiatric diagnoses tend to sort with insecure categories of attachment. So in adulthood, um, when, when they've looked at um, researchers at um, individuals with various diagnoses, um, depression, anxiety disorders, um, they've uh, tended to only have 15% as, as opposed to much higher numbers of secure samples, of secure individuals in their sample. One sample of suicidal uh, adolescents uh, who were hospitalized, um, the very um, low number of secure individuals in that sample, very much um, uh, more represent, represented by that preoccupied group, the ambivalent resistant group. Can you give a description of how we can recognize this in our own lives or how it can be recognized uh, uh, for, for listeners out there? What are some indications that, oh, I think I might have some of these attachment issues? Because uh, you, you've mentioned how it, how it will surface in, as a child, but how about as an adult, what kinds of ways does it express itself? Beautiful question, Dr. Parks. Let me, uh, that leads me into the, uh, the next thing I want to talk about. So, uh, so 
Uh, yes, I, I can talk about that. And I can talk about that really through the development of the adult attachment interview. So Mary Main uh, saw that she was able to start predicting based on a conversation with, uh, with the grown up, with the adult, she was able to predict what was the behavior of the child going to be. And she said, what is it that I'm picking up? What is it about the language? So um, she and others developed the adult attachment interview. And that, in that interview, uh, you would ask me uh, about uh, who raised me as a child and then, and then ask me five adjectives to describe my relationship um, with uh, whichever parent I grew up with or my mother or my father, who, whoever I spent the bulk of my time with. Um, and I, lots of times it's a mother and a father. And, and you ask about an adjective and then you ask uh, somebody to, um, to support the adjective. So you might say to me, oh, uh, Jeff, you said your relationship with your uh, mother was loving. Can you give an example of that? And I would need within this spontaneous interview to come up with a memory of between when I was five and 12 of a time when um, I remember a loving experience with my mom and I would need to support the adjective. Um, and if I could, that correlates with security. The later parts of the adult attachment interview uh, talk about things like how I reacted um, when I first separated, maybe when I went away to camp, um, was I hurt physically or emotionally um, growing up? And, and you're looking for a generally uh, fresh personality who's not using uh, linguist um, um, kind of psychobabble in, in, in what they're saying um, or overused words like I have abandonment issues or something like that. Um, but actually somebody who's got a fresh speech who appears to be thinking about this for the first time and valuing attachment and able to support the words that they're using. So uh, these individuals who are secure are able to maintain a relationship um, and simultaneously go back and retrieve a memory. Um, so they're not overwhelmed when they go back and retrieve the memory um, by their anxiety of that. And, and they can support the words. So if I said my mother was loving, I might say, yeah, I remember when I ran for uh, student body vice president and and um, she picked me up and she said, what happened? And I said, I lost. And she gave me a big hug and she said, let's go get some ice cream. And you can kind of feel that response. You can kind of feel that there's a, a mother there who's caring about me and uh, attending and attuning to me um, about my experience so that there's, um, yeah. So, so, so do you ever feel a sense of determinism when you think about that? So, so it sounds like what we're saying is, it's better to be secure than insecure. And, and, and that obviously, I think many of us, myself certainly included, can, can um, corroborate that with our own human experience, that we do better when we're secure, but that there's this deeper meaning to secure in attachment theory. And that Mary Main and her predecessors kind of worked towards this idea that you can ask people about their own parenting situations and you're going to find out a lot about how good of a parent they're going to be and with a ridiculous I mean I think part of the the who cares thing part of what makes attachment really exciting at least for me is the prediction whenever a psychologist can predict something with an amazing accuracy like here or like with Dr. John Gottman okay. um, it's very exciting but is there a determinism in the idea that oh man we're not even talking about your life we're talking about your life with your parent, you really your parents 
and what you can say about your childhood, and that's going to predict how you raise your kid. I'm not sure what you mean by a determinism. Like, like sort of that it's fate that like, it's out of your hands yeah, at this point because it's already what you're, how you talk about your parents. It's so in the past already. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's fate and it's alterable. It's an alterable fate. Um, okay. Hold that thought. Cause this is great that we're going into this territory. I'm waiting for bated breath to hear what your answer to this, but if you're just joining us, you're listening to let's get psyched on KUCR. And we're talking about, attachment with dr jeff katzman he's just going to tell us what we could do for insecure there's so many of us that are out there they're very insecure so this is great all right go dr so let me just um be clear about kind of how awesome this is um dr atkins for example i could give you the adult attachment interview with those questions um and predict with 70 percent accuracy how your unborn child would behave in the strange situation with you at one year of life maybe 10 years from now. So, um, and, and it's not based on anything you tell me actually that happened factually. Um, it's actually the linguistics with, and linguistic errors that, uh, um, that you have in relating your story. So if you relate the story in a way where you're supporting what you're saying, you maintain collaboration with me during the interview, um, then, then actually, the pr- prediction would be, I mean, I'm, I'm talking in very general terms, that, that your child would be the one at one years of age who would um, protest your separation and um, be reassured when you come back and actually um, navigate peer relationships on the playground. Um, so, so there's a lot predictive of that. If, if um, when I ask you those questions, you were to say something like, yeah, my mom, she was the greatest. And I said, oh, Alan, can you give me a memory to support that? And you said something like, I don't know, she just was like the best mom ever. Um, so you used adjectives for adjectives, but there was no memory coming. Or you'd say, well, I can't really remember back then. Um, um, or, or, yeah, um, that is more consistent with idealization. Um, and folks who idealize that that's consistent with the dismissive um, paradigm though. So if you were to do that, one could then um, predict. And, and also if you were to minimize attachment needs, say things like, well, I mean, yeah, I was hospitalized for six months, but I was fine. Um, and, and really kind of minimize anything that happened. Um, well, I didn't like crying or anything when I went to camp, um, kind of derogation of attachment. Um, we could predict likely that your one-year-old would be the one who doesn't really care if you uh, come or go. Um, those transcripts tend to be very short, terse, um, not, not so verbose, as opposed to the preoccupied speaker. If you were a preoccupied speaker, I'd ask you a question and you might say, oh, my mom, she was a nightmare. And I'd say, okay, can you remember a memory? Can I remember a memory? And you might go on and on and on um, verbally. And, um, and, and then actually get even lost in the memory and you're, you can um, uh, even forget what I said and you might not complete your sentences. These are all markers of like preoccupation that correlate with that child actually who when you leave the room um, are overwhelmed and they can't settle down um, when, you, when uh, you return. So that's kind of how this works. The basic premise is kind of the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. 
that these right. are how attachment to your question, these are how attachment patterns are handed down. I had the pleasure, uh, what I, my a disclosure, I guess I'll make is that I had the pleasure of actually taking a small attachment course with Dr. Katzman. Um, and something that I thought a lot about during the time that he was teaching me some of these attachment concepts was, okay, so I used to work for Child Protective Services as a behavior therapist before I became a doctor. And I had a patient once, I was a court appointed monitor. And this was a, uh, this was a kids who unfortunately had been separated, but from the mom, because the mom had had some behaviors that child protective services felt were not okay. And the mom was of course, incredibly disturbed by this. And, but she had court appointed visits and my job was to monitor them. And I, what I would see was the kids didn't care about her. They, they just didn't care about her. We would be at Burger King and they were in the ball pit or whatever, and they were doing their own thing. And the mom was trying to show me that the kids loved her and that she needed to be reunified with the kids, which of course I would have wanted to if, if I thought that was best for the kids. And the mom started kind of trying to manipulate the kids to crying and saying how much they missed her. And so she would kind of whimper around them and ask them leading questions like, do you miss me? Do you miss me? And we ended, we ended up actually having to stop the, the court. We ended up having to stop visitation and it was a very sad case, but it made me think as I thought back to this during your course, Dr. Katzman, it makes me think of like the film minority report, like future crimes. If you can predict who's going to be a bad parent, is this something that has ever been used in a, in a, like by a child protective services entity or by any other entity to kind of um, put people in categories of, of less privilege. And then also, is there a way that we can, like, has there been a therapy established or something that can change a bad attachment style? Yeah. Great questions. So uh, there, there was a study um, of kids who had what's actually a fourth category of attachment, which is a disorganized attachment, came from um, tra uh, traumatic backgrounds who were fostered um, at nine months of life um, into families where two months um, for, sorry, into families where both parents were scored securely on the adult attachment interview. And nine months later, um, almost across the board, those parents, those children then scored securely. Um, so, so they're at 18 months of life, there was really a change in their attachment uh, representation. So that was so powerful, that study actually, that the state of Delaware decided that, that um, they, they, in order to adopt children, you needed to score securely in the adult attachment. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. That was a while back and I don't know where that is now, um, but it, this um, certainly has policy ramifications, right? And Bowlby, who was the kind of um, creator of attachment theory through his secure base theory, I mean, he was a policymaker and he, he created the whole idea of rooming in with children. I mean, when I had my tonsils out, parents weren't allowed in the hospital. And I kind of remember from a very young age being alone in the hospital, that doesn't happen now. Um, now we have rooming in really because of the work of uh, Bowlby and, and uh, what we've learned from attachment about the importance and critical nature of a parent. So uh, 
so yeah, and and um, your your other question had to do with what interventions might there be actually to help with this. So there's a host of parent-child interactions, uh, uh, interventions. Sorry, there is something called circle of security in which parents learn actually about how to um, how to attune uh, and support each other and attune um, through spe specific. Uh, uh, specific exercises in a secure way to their children. And it's often in a group and they're often supported in doing that. And it's everyday language that's used. So it's, uh, it's um, user-friendly. The University of Michigan um, has developed something called Mom Power, um, where they support a group of mothers who are raising kids. Uh, in the journey of becoming parents. And, and that's really, if you think about secure base theory, uh, parents need support. And so if parents have a place where they can feel secure, they're less likely to become uh, um, disrupted themselves through interactions with their kids. The same thing was done with dads. Uh, and you and I talked about this at one point, I got training with them, um, but they re renamed themselves a fraternity of fathers and really were involved in actually how dads tend to play more. Um, and, and that that's an important part of how they connect with their kids. So the uh, Steeles, Howard and Marion Steele are uh, some of the attachment teachers now who teach the adult attachment interview and have developed a, also an intervention uh, with, with moms and with uh, cocaine and drug addicted mothers and, and how uh, within a group uh, learning about the principles and ideas of, of security are, are really critically important. Then I would say some psychotherapies for grownups are really based in attachment theory, Mental, uh, mentalizing based therapies really being one of them. And they're based on the idea of what Howard Steele developed called, uh, and Peter Fonagy called reflective functioning, RF, reflective functioning. And that is really, can I get what's going on in me? And can I get what's going on in you? And, and can we begin to, uh, talk in a kind of, or think in a kind of meta way about what's going on um, between us. And so security, um, it, it actually correlates directly with somebody's capacity for reflective functioning. And uh, mentalizing therapies are really aimed to help patients begin to develop the capacity to reflect. So that when uh, certain kinds of patients uh, come in and, and are maybe cutting themselves because they're they're so angry about something what, uh, that happened. Um, um, they, they've gone into what the mentalizing folks call a non-mentalizing mode. They're not kind of able to think and feel simultaneously anymore about their own state and the state of others, but they have to do something that's a more concrete um, uh, self-harming behavior in, in order to solve the dilemma. And so the whole premise really of mentalizing is to help people understand where that breakdown happens and get back to mentalizing modes where they can actually understand what's going on within them and understand uh, potentially the context of what's going on in another person. Fascinating. Now, is there something that um, maybe folks are, aren't in therapy, but they have recognized some of the things you said tonight uh, where there was insecure attachment or they weren't very close to their parents and they recognize some insecurity of themselves and some, some attachment issues. What are one or two things that we can practice every day to kind of help heal those wounds and become more secure 
and happier people. Yeah. So there's evidence out there that security trumps that that actually um, exposure and connection to secure models um, and secure people and secure relationships is just so helpful. So uh, when when we're um, when we it's really good if we can identify people who are very supportive in our lives and who we support. And when we have those friendships, they're just invaluable and we want to hold on to them and we want to um, think about them and think about how can we connect more with that stuff, that stuff of um, playfulness and collaboration and support and everything that security represents as opposed to hanging out um, potentially with people maybe that we feel an obligation to hang out with, but who actually maybe is a friend who talks to us all the time and we accommodate to what's going on, but actually um, leaves us feeling depleted all the time, for example. Um, so so I, I think there is a certain kind of taking stock of the kind of, of who are we hanging with and what is the base that we're creating for ourselves and, this, and the circle of security within our own lives. Um, or as I would say in our, our book that we just wrote, our, who's our, in our ensemble? Um, and, and how do we create secure ensembles um, in, our, in ourselves? And, and really, that's how we can change the world, really. If we can um, ourselves feel secure and then have growing abilities to take other people's perspectives, um, that's what uh, is missing a little bit in our world right now and what's led to some of the great difficulties that we saw this last summer. And that does it for this edition of Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. If today we talked with Dr. Jeff Katzman, he is the author of a book that was released just two days ago, Ensemble. Thank you, Dr. Katzman, for joining us tonight on Let's Get Psyched. Thanks so much for having Dr. Barth, Dr. Atkins. Thank you, Dr. Atkins, our co-hosts. If you have comments, suggestions, questions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com, and you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong, our production assistant is Ismail Gonzalez. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. <laughs>